Well, this morning we are going to finish our series in the book of 1 Peter, and Curtis Castleberry is going to be preaching for us this morning, and I want to give you a little heads up on what's coming next. Next week, we are going to be entering into the Advent season, the Christmas season, where we eagerly anticipate the coming of our Lord and Savior on Christmas Day. And beginning next week and the four Sundays following, we're going to be looking at the servant songs from Isaiah. There's four servant songs in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah never mentions the name Jesus, but he talks about a servant who is coming one day to set his people free. And we know now that that person, that servant that he speaks of is Jesus himself. And so as we prepare our hearts for Christmas, we're going to be looking at these four servant songs over the next four Sundays here at Trinity Grace. Hope that you'll join us. Hope you'll invite friends to be a part of this season with us. But this morning, Curtis is going to come and close out the book of 1 Peter for us. Thanks, Curtis. So James K. Smith, he's a Christian philosopher, author. He wrote a book recently, I guess it was in the last couple of years, called You Are What You Love. In this book, he talks about um, how our hearts are like a homing beacon, you know, pointing toward uh, what we think is the good life. We have an internal compass, a disposition toward what we think is going to satisfy us the most. We have a fundamental orientation toward the world, and we're on autopilot, he says, and we move out in the world. A lot of times we think, we think our way through the world. But he says it's actually uh, that we feel our way through the world. We feel our way through the world. And if that's the case, um, if we're feeling our way to the world, and we encounter suffering, which we don't include in our list of our best life now, if we encounter it, what do we do? When we begin to distrust God in the midst of the suffering, which our suffering can be extremely tough, Peter actually helps us see the way in which the devil tries to exploit that suffering, exploit our weakness in the middle of it, and get us to do and act contrary to what God is calling for us to do. Remembering that he's a liar, he is our adversary, and he's at work in in our weakness uh, and and, uh, moves us, should move us out to actively place ourselves under God's mighty hand and in his care. So that's what we want to look at this morning, how God is calling for us to, to live wisely under his mighty care. Our passage for this morning is 1 Peter 5, 6 through 11. Let me read it for us and pray. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that, you, uh, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, he himself uh, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that we are under your mighty hand. We are in your care. Lord, would you remind us of that this morning? And would you give us wisdom to discern uh, the way in which the devil or adversary is at work? Um, and uh, may we more and more, as we reflect over this text, see Jesus and him and uh, uh, um, uh, his strength comes through for us in our weakness. May we see that more clearly as we explore this in, uh, by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. We're going to look at three things together. Unlearning, autonomy, 
learning dependence, and we'll want to look at what perfect trust is. So first, let's look at unlearning autonomy. From the days, day we were born, it seems like, we are seeking independence, right? For those of you who have kids, doesn't that seem like that's the thing that they want most is the freedom to do what they want to do. Pride is at the center of, uh, of our very being as soon as we're born. Proverbs says that pride is the, the height of folly. It's foolishness. And pride is an inaccurate assessment of ourselves in the middle of the world. It's an inaccurate assessment of our situation. Peter actually tells us in, in earlier in chapter 5 in verse, in verse 5 that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. While the father of, of pride really is the devil. And he's at work in the world opposing us. But the problem is we move our way through the world seeking more and more autonomy. And we need to unlearn this. The question is, what's the source of your greatest anxiety? What's the source of your endless toil during the night? What keeps you up at night, struggling through it? What's the source of your greatest toil during the day that you're striving for? What's your greatest fear? What's your greatest aspiration? I talk to students all the time, and it seems like more and more, well, now they're, they're diagnosing it clinically now more and more, but they seem to be more and more anxious, seem to be more and more, kind of have this restlessness in them that I need to accomplish this or I can't be okay. It's an endless toil, and I talk to them uh, about this consistently over and over and over again. But I seem to see that more, more and more, being more and more present in their lives. And the issue is, we're, not, we're told that suffering is actually a bad thing and we should remove ourselves from it. And a, what a good life is, what our best life is, is usually the opposite of what we experience in the world. Suffering is the opposite of what we, experience, we want to experience as a good life. We want a life of peace, tranquility, of wealth, devoid of any hardship, devoid of hardship of every kind. And, and in reality, that's the place where our greatest anxieties are. And what the devil does is he comes in and exploits that weakness. So the question is, what is the source of your greatest anxiety? And I'm going to tell you, that's where the devil actually does his work. Tim Keller, on a sermon he preached on this uh, on, in First Peter, he says that lots of us, or, or, or many of us, are actually overly superstitious when it comes to the devil. Right? Think about him. He's at work in everything. I've stubbed my toe. Darn you, devil. You got me again. Others of us are, he says, I think he made this word up, but he says substitious, right? We're not superstitious. We don't even think about the devil at all. He's not at work. He maybe doesn't even exist. But Peter here actually tells us that he's like a roaring lion seeking those whom, he's, uh, whom he desires to devour. He's alive. He's is one of our songs we sang. He's at work. He's prowling around. He's trying to, um, to, to derail us. The, the question is, does he always come roaring in our lives? Does he come baring his teeth, roaring at you? In reality, he's, I think, more often than not in my own life, he comes like Paul talks about him in 2 Corinthians, like an angel of light, disguising himself and disguising the way in which he works and leads us into temptation, leads us to follow his path. I think it's more like, a, has anybody ever watched a, a snake consume something? I know it's kind of morbid. You know, a, a large snake consuming a large animal. It doesn't just swallow it whole. It's piece by piece by piece, but it will 
swallow things that are, you know, two times its size of it. I don't know the science behind it. But anyway, swallow these animals whole. The, the Greek word here that talks about the devour, that Satan's trying to devour, that's what it's talking about, is actually swallowing whole. The devil is at work trying to swallow us. But I don't think he works in our lives with these glaringly obvious um, uh, temptations. It's usually the subtle things that lead us down a path that we uh, end up destroying the things around us. He exploits our weakness. I think he's that nagging voice in your head that doesn't go, in, go away, the one that pokes you and prods you. The one who says, if God was really for you, he would give you what you want. If God was really for you, he would give you what you want. You deserve to be happy. He's not giving you happiness. He's not going to give you what you need. You need to take it for yourself. You deserve to be happy. Treat yourself. Or let me treat you since God won't do it. Understanding Satan's deception, understanding his schemes, and how he's trying to move us out in isolation. Ever watch uh, nature shows where the lion will like run into a herd of animals and isolate one, and then they'll attack it? That's what he does. He's trying to isolate us, and he tries us to get us to believe that God isn't for us. Whenever the church, we, we preach and we tell you that submitting to God is actually what he's calling for us to do. He tells you, God's not trustworthy. You can't believe him. Peter here tells us that we're to live under, put ourselves humbly under God's mighty hand. He says, that hand is meant to crush you. God says he provides for us and whatever we have is enough. Satan comes in and says, he's not providing for you. Uh, Peter says that we're in a community of other people who are suffering in a similar place than us. He says, you're not in a community, you're isolated. You're on your own. Nobody's with you. Nobody's for you. God promises that there's a future glory that's after the suffering that we endure here. He says that the present sufferings that you're in are indicative of his, his, his lack of ability to keep his promises. He's not going to come through. And whenever we buy into that lie, what happens? We begin to isolate ourselves. We begin to listen to this voice and we begin to try to take things on our own. We try to, we fall into his schemes and he begins to consume us. Most of us don't fall into glaring traps that we see. It's, it's the small steps toward disobedience into large scale entrapment that is his wheelhouse. It's like this. I have a, a, a guy I know who's probably going to be going through a messy divorce. He's in the middle of a, of a, a break in his relationship, but they've been married for he and his wife for over 10 years, they have an 11-year-old daughter, um, uh, you know, nine-year-old, and then a four-year-old kid. Um, and they've been struggling, and everybody who, you know, broadcasts everything on social media, that's what people do now. It's like you just watch a soap opera unfold before your eyes. And it's just sad, as I've, I've, I've just seen it decline. She ends up he, uh, leaving him. A couple of days later, she posts on her social media account about this guy who's treating her the way that she deserves to be treated. The one who loves her and who's affectionate with her, and it's not her husband. She's now left her husband, and she's justifying leaving, her, leaving him to go with somebody else who treats her better. I guarantee you that it wasn't a trap she just like fell in that was right there. It's the small steps in that direction. The discontentment with your spouse the movement in that direction of thoughts after another person. That's what the way the devil works. 
and moves, moves someone to actually uh, break a relationship that's years long. The sad thing about what he promises, though, the devil promises that you're going to get to the end of the rainbow and you're going to find that pot of gold. Uh, Scott Saul says that it, selfish ambition, but I think any pursuit after these disordered loves that we have in our life that we think are going to satisfy us. He says that it's a road to nowhere. It's a goose chase without a goose. It's a frenetic race to the end of a rainbow only to discover at the rainbow's end that there is not, there was not, and there never will be a pot of gold waiting for you there. The devil gets you to look at the end of the rainbow and says, walk in that direction. Doesn't matter. God's not coming through for you. Walk in that direction and I'll give you that gold. And the sad thing is you get to the end of the rainbow and there's not, it's not the thing you were looking for. Or you partially get what you want, but the shine wears off. Peter calls for us to resist him. And so does James. That was um, in our confession time this morning in the law, the reading of the law. Calls for us to resist him. To not live into the autonomy that he's calling for us to live in. We gets us to believe that we need to figure this out on our own. I was talking to a, a friend of mine who called me last night. He was, uh, uh, was a member of the church I was an assistant pastor in before I came to RUF. And uh, he was actually stoned. I could tell he was stoned, but he relapsed within the last year. He'd been sober for about a year when I was with him there uh, trying to disciple. And, um, and now he's, he's not sober anymore. But he uh, is struggling and he was reasoning with me as he's, he's high. I could tell he was reasoning with me and telling me how, um, but, I'm, but I'm all right, I'm in an okay place. And I said, you're the last, like that's the farthest from okay where you are right now, man. And he says, I just need to, you know, stay in the positivity. I'm like, you need to sit in the negativity for a little while, bro. Things are not okay right now. Things are not okay. And your, uh, your best thinking got you there, right? That's what they say in AA. Your best thinking is keeping you in this place. Last conversation I had with him a couple of weeks ago was after I knew he had relapsed, he said, I'm, I'm going to go and get into an inpatient. I'm going to go, go into, uh, uh, to get treatment. And I said, go do it. But he was sober then. I talked to him last night. He was not sober and he was not talking about rehab. He was talking about figuring it out on his own in isolation. And the sad thing about it, which is one of the, the, the beauty of it as well, is that he was, I could hear him just longing for help. Like, I need something to help me. I, I, I can't do this on my own. Peter says, resist the devil. Resist him. And, and James says, he'll flee from you. But he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Pay attention to the way in which he's at work in your life. Um, Michael said this last week when he was preaching, but I, it's, it's really helpful. And this is why we move into community. This is how we resist him. Is that I had to remind my friend, uh, this, is not, this is not where God wants you to be right now. This is not, you're not in a good place. We need to move you in a good direction. Um, he says, remember, uh, we need to be reminded at times because we all go insane of the promises that God made to us or that we made in our sober moments. We need to be reminded of the promises we made in our sober moments. We can only do that. We can only be reminded if we're not trying to pull ourselves up and trying to handle it on our own. We can only be reminded as we submit, which is what Peter's talking about in the entire context of this, submitting to our pastors who remind us, submitting to each other as we remind each other to resist the devil that your actions, your, your movement in the direction that you want to go in is not sober. It's not watchful. It's not careful. You're falling into temptation. 
What we need to do is actually see the way in which the devil wants to magnify the pride in our own hearts and move us out into autonomy. We need to unlearn that. And the way we do that is that God wants to teach us to be dependent. We need to learn dependence. In Matthew 18, one through four, Jesus says, um, Matthew tells us, and Jesus says, at the time the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the middle of them and said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Peter tells us that God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If we're autonomous, you're not needy. (laughs) I talk to students all the time that tell me that they're like, I can do this on my own. I'm not needy. And I'm like, but you are. You're so, if you could see yourself, you know, from, from this point of view, you'd recognize how, how, how needy you are and how dependent you need to make yourself, how humble, uh, how you need to humble yourself, make yourself like a child and become dependent. Dependence is the quality of, or state of needing something or needing someone. The enemy of dependence is autonomy. It's, it's complete autonomy and pride. We need to learn to become more dependent on our, our community, but on, on God especially. Michael said this, there aren't many problems in your life that humility can't fix. And Peter tells us, how do we fix our situation? How do we fix our uh, problems when they're in the middle of suffering? He says, humble yourself. There aren't many problems that humility can't, fi- or, or humility can't fix. And that's the truth. Never fully, you're never fully independent. You know that church? We feel like, I think Christian maturity is us growing up into being more independent Christian people, independent adult Christian people. But in reality, the more you grow as a Christian should be a downward movement. The more you grow as a Christian is, is, is your downward movement into dependence, more and more dependence on God. More and more humility and dependence on God. Humility is actively getting lower. Actively getting lower. Not thinking of uh, less or more of ourselves, but thinking of ourselves less, as C.S. Lewis told us. But we need help with humility, and so that's what Peter does for us here in our passage. He tells us a couple of reasons why we can humble ourselves and, and put ourselves under God's care. <clears throat> is one is that uh, Reason number one is that God is a, uh, his mighty right hand is what we're under, that we need to place ourselves under. That he's the sovereign creator of, of the universe, and he has dominion over all things. It's not just about his, and, and it's not just about his, his, his powerful rule over the world. It's actually about his, his, his care, his providence. Um, Christians hearing this message, or even the Hebrews of the time, they would have heard this message, and they would have thought back to God's mighty hand as he redeemed his people from slavery in Egypt, took them into the wilderness and cared for them in the wilderness and then moved them into the promised land and then established a nation for himself, made them into a mighty kingdom. They would have thought of God's mighty hand as the one who had parted the Red Sea, the one who had, had brought plagues down on Egypt to show Pharaoh his power so that he might let his people free. Peter says we need to humble ourselves under that and say we need to become dependent on the Father, the one who loves us, the one who's caring for us by his strength, his power. God is the one who's, who's, who's ultimately governing all things in the world. We can try to, to govern it on ourselves and become autonomous, but we can never fully be that. He calls for us to submit ourselves to God and be under his care, place ourselves under his care. 
The second reason he tells us is that in God's care, he calls for us to cast our anxiety on him and he hears us. Why should you submit and why should you humble yourselves under the Father, under God, is because he cares for you. That your anxieties that you keep piling up on your shoulders, trying to accomplish for yourself goals and all these things, fixing your life, fixing your world. He says, cast those on me. I care for you. And then Peter tells us that he'll fix everything. That's what he, he says he's going to do. Knowing that we are in a community, <clears throat> he says he's going to bring about at the proper time our exaltation. He says he's going to restore us. That means he's going to mend us. He's going to make us firm and, and strong. He's going to impart strength. He's going to confirm us. And he's going to establish us, place us on a solid ground in due time. He says that that's the reality of our situation. And why do we know, and how do we know that he's actually going to accomplish that? Well, uh, Tim Keller says that, did Jesus die for you? Did he die for you? Then despite all your unanswered questions, you can be sure that he loves you, that he understands that he's with you even if you don't feel him. Peter says that after you suffer for a little while, after you engage with the same kind of sufferings that Christ has suffered and you endure, um, God will make the, the reality of the not yet more present in your life. He will take you to glory with him. The good news of the gospel is that we're already locationally, positionally with Christ in the heavens and that his guarantee is that he's going to bring heaven to earth. He's going to fix all things for us. So why should we care or why should we humble ourselves? Well, because he's God, he's king. But why should we cast our anxieties on him? Is because you can trust him. He hears you. He hears you. And the third final point is that Jesus is the only one who exercised perfect trust. He's the one who lived in total dependence upon the Father. And he's the one who guaranteed, who secured for us the redemption that we now have and that will be fully finally realized uh, at the end. Peter says that cast your anxieties on the Father because he cares for you. Cast them on him. You know that Jesus displayed perfect trust in the Father in his life, his death, his resurrection. And because he's done that, we have the guarantee of that promise that God will actually come through for us because he's died for us. You know that in Jesus, I, I, I talk to students all the time and I hear this, like what they really want is, is at a boy, at a girl, right? That's what we want. We want somebody to look at us and pat us on the back, give us a round of applause and tell us like, you've accomplished it, you've made it. When God is already looking at you, if you're one of his, he gives you every blessing, every benediction that you ever could, could, could ever need. He tells you before you even accomplish anything, um, I love you, I'm proud of you. I tell students that all the time, why are you endlessly toiling to find something that God is already giving you? Why are you working yourself to death and not resting when God is already telling you, I'm proud of you, you've accomplished it. Now rest. Why are you endlessly toiling when God has already given you the blessing that you expect to hear once you've accomplished it? He's already given that to you because Jesus has already accomplished it for you. And then I say, now get to work. No. In the end, God will turn everything around. All the sufferings of our lives as we're connected with Jesus, because he's raised from the dead, our sufferings will not be the final word. We will be raised. All the pain, the heartache, the despair will all end in a glorious resurrection with Jesus. 
God has dominion over death, over the devil, and Jesus has disarmed death. He's disarmed the devil. Um, C.S. Lewis in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe has this great uh, picture here, and I love it. Is the devil here? It doesn't, Paul doesn't actually say, or Peter doesn't say that uh, the devil's a roaring lion who's powerful, the king of beasts, right? He doesn't call him king. He just says he's a, like a roaring lion, the one who's making lots of noise, right? He's baring his teeth and, and is, 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 is looking for power, but he doesn't have it anymore. He's been disarmed. He's the counterfeit lion. C.S. Lewis calls uh, in his story in, in, in the, in the uh, Chronicles of Narnia, says Aslan, his, the picture of him is he's a, he's a lion, right? He's a lion. And uh, at the end of the story, after Edmund has, has, has uh, taken the Turkish delight, has fallen into the temptation of the white witch, is now going to face the penalty of his, his actions. Um, and it's the truth, escapes, gets away, and then Aslan comes and substitutes himself in place for uh, in place for Edmund. I love it as, as C.S. Lewis. I just want to read a little bit as we draw to a close, but um, Aslan's been, he, he's, he's let himself be taken. And Lucy and Susan, they hold their breaths waiting for Aslan's roar and for him to spring upon his enemies, but he never came, but it never came. They begin to to, uh, to, to mock him. They shave his, his mane, they, uh, his fur, all of that, and they make him uh, 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 and, uh, like a cat, and they start calling him names. Um, they're laughing at him. They say he's only a, a cat after all. Lucy, holding back tears from her, che- her cheeks, says, how can they, the brutes, the brutes? For now that the first shock was over, the shorn face of Aslan looked braver, more beautiful, and more patient than ever. The witch comes and they say, muzzle him. And they cover him up. And then they, with ropes, hoist him, get him onto a table, the stone table. And they cover him up with these ropes. And they take a knife. And they sharpen it. And they get ready to, to take him. And at the, toward the end there, it says, Lewis says, At last she drew near and she stood by Aslan's head. Her face was working and twitching with passion. But, he looked, but his looked up to the sky, still quiet neither angry nor afraid, but a little sad. Before she gave the final blow, she whispered in his ear, and now who is one? Fool, did you think that by all this you would save the human traitor? Now I'll kill you instead of him as our pact was, and so the deep magic will be appeased. But when you are dead, what will prevent me from killing him as well? And who will take him out of my hand then? Understand that you have given me Narnia forever." You have lost your own life and you have, saved, you have not saved his. In that knowledge, despair and die. But little does a white witch know, that was not Aslan's undoing. It was her own. The devil is the counterfeit lion who parades himself, parades himself around seeking to devour. Jesus is the one who let himself be devoured the true lion of the tribe of Judah who let himself be devoured so that we might never be devoured by our present suffering or by future suffering. The devil is the one who's the lion who uh, makes lots of noise, but he's the lion who's lost all his teeth. Because Jesus has secured our salvation, he's the lion who's lost his teeth. And Peter is so sure of this, so sure of this, of God's fatherly care, his mighty hand, providential care over his life, his community that he's drawn up into of sufferers for a little while, and this future promise 
that he ends this passage with a doxology. He says, to him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, to you be all glory, honor, praise, majesty. Lord, you are worthy of praise. Lord, you are worthy of our complete devotion. You are worthy of everything that we have, our very lives laid down in submission to you. Lord, help us to be the people that are not, uh, don't seek out more and more autonomy. Lord, but those who seek out more dependence. Lord, dependence on you, our good father who cares for us, who loves us. Lord, who's paid the way for us to become your children. And so I pray that you would help us, Lord, lean into Jesus more and more, that we might be people who overcome temptation. Lord, those who lean into Jesus and his great strength, even in the middle of our weakness, Lord, help us to be dependent and help us, give us, remind us of the reasons why we can trust you, good Father. In Jesus' name, amen.